Chapter Two of the Life and Times of Kateri Tekakwitha by Ellen Walworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mohawk Valley and the Mohawks at the time of Tekakwitha's birth. Father Jogues was put to death in the year 1646 on the south side of the Mohawk River, a few miles to the eastward of Fonda, and not far from the mouth of the Skohari River. Close to the shrine which has been erected at Auriesville in his memory is the very ravine in which, during his captivity there, he buried his friend and only companion, René Goupil. René, it will be remembered, was cruelly murdered for signing an Indian child with the sign of the cross. The description of the place where this occurred is very explicit in Father Jogues' published letters, and there is no other spot in the whole Mohawk Valley to which it can well be applied. He mentions a certain river which was a quarter of a league distant from the Indian town of Osernanon, where he was held captive. This was undoubtedly the Skoheri. There in that same vicinity, after he had escaped from captivity and returned to the Mohawks as a missionary, he met his own tragic fate, or, rather, the glorious reward of his zeal. There, too, or very near there, ten years after his death, Tekakwitha was born. The exact location of her birthplace has not been determined. It was either at the Turtle Castle of Asernanon, described by Jogues, the name of which was afterwards changed, or at a later village site near Ori's Creek, to which the people of that castle moved, and to which they gave the name of Gondawaga. In either case, her birthplace was less than a mile from the present hamlet of Orisville. There, Kateri Tekakwitha was born in the year 1656. Her father was a Mohawk warrior, and her mother a Christian Algonquin captive, who had been brought up and baptized among the French settlers at Three Rivers in Canada. The Iroquois, or people of the Longhouse, including the Mohawks, Oneidas, Onondagas, Cayugas, and Senecas, were enemies of the Algonquin tribes, and hostile to the French. The Mohawks, especially, were accustomed to make frequent raids on the settlements in Canada, leaving desolation behind them on the St. Lawrence, and bearing with them to their own valley rich booty and also captives to be tortured and burned, or else adopted into the five nations of Iroquois to swell their numbers. If Frenchmen, these captives were often held as prisoners of war, and haughty terms made for their ransom, it happened on one of these raids into Canada that Tekakwitha's mother, the Algonquin, was thus captured, torn suddenly from a peaceful home, and the French friends who were teaching her the prayer. She was hurried through the lakes and woods of a strange country, along the great war trail that leads from the St. Lawrence to the Mohawk, through northeastern New York, fast following in the path of Jogues, the light canoe that bore her came southward with the braves and their trophies of war through lake champlain and then lake george the newly christened lake st sacrament little did the captive dream that ever a child of hers would take that same long journey back again 
an exile from the home that she was then approaching all unconscious of her fate a home indeed awaited her coming in the land of the mohawks she was saved from the torture and the fire by a fierce pagan mohawk warrior who took the young algonquin for his wife the gentle girl had captured the heart of her conqueror their family consisted of one son and an infant daughter known later as kateri tekequitha pere claude chauchetier who wrote in sixteen ninety five tells us that they dwelt at gondawaga a little village of the mohawks there they must have occupied one section of an iroquois longhouse other kindred families filling up its entire length on both sides of an open space and passageway through the centre the occupants of every four sections or alcoves in these houses two families being on each side of the passage shared a common hearth fire with a hole above it in the roof to let in the daylight and let out the smoke there were usually five of these fires and twenty families in a house about a hundred feet in length these united households gave name and meaning to the iroquois league of canonciani or people of the longhouse there is reason to believe that tekakwitha's father took an active part in the affairs both of the mohawk nation and the iroquois league we are told indeed that after his death her uncle who seems to have taken her father's place and responsibilities was one of the chief men of the turtle castle whose deputies ranked higher in council than those of the bear and wolf castles and dagoron and tyanontogon this was because the turtle was created first according to their genesis of things these three palisaded strongholds and their outlying hamlets made up the mohawk or kanienga nation it was likened in the beautiful figurative language of the iroquois to a group of families gathered round a hearth or council fire and filling up one end of the long house or great league of the five nations founded by hiawatha and his friends the duty of the kanyangas of the mohawk valley was to guard the eastern entrance of the long house or the door which looked out on the hudson their privilege was to furnish the great war chief that should lead the people of the league to battle the proud senecas whose portion of the house extended from seneca lake to niagara were the western doorkeepers of this household of nations waging fierce war on their neighbors near lake erie the wily onondagas wise old politicians in the middle of the longhouse at onondaga lake led in council their leading chief the elected president of this first american republic lit the central council fire and sat in state among the fifty oyanders sachems who formed the iroquois senate ten of these were always kaniangas or mohawks and fourteen were onondagas these two nations and the senecas were called brothers while the intermediate oneidas and cayugas were always spoken of as nephews because they were younger and less important nations with fewer oyanders tekakwitha's father may have been one of the ten mohawk oyanders 
but there is more reason to believe that he belonged to a class of war chiefs who took part only in councils of war in sixteen fifty six these war chiefs were very influential for the iroquois had set out on a wild career of conquest the warlike mohawks as usual taking the lead the very same year that the little mohawk algonquin was born in their land they swept like a tornado over ile orleans near quebec they carried off to their castles the last remnant of the huron people who far from their own land had gathered near the french guns for protection these hurons from the shores of lake huron belonged to the iroquois stock as distinguished from the algonquin races in very early times they had come down to the settlements on the st lawrence to trade with the french and zealous jesuit missionaries had accompanied them on their return to their own country after great hardships these missionaries had succeeded in making them christians when as a final result of an old feud these huron iroquois as they are often called were driven from their homes in the northwest by the iroquois of the league and wiped completely out of existence as a nation six of the jesuits who dwelt among them and whose strange isolated lives have furnished the theme for parkman's glowing pages were massacred while others were cruelly tortured by the ubiquitous mohawks during the period of ten short years that elapsed between jogues last captivity and tekakwitha's birth could the father of the mohawk lily have reddened his hands in their blood it is more than likely for though andesanc or jogues was the only one of these martyrs who had reached the mohawk valley they were all slain by mohawk braves jogues daniel brebeuf lalemant garnier and garot nor is this a complete list of the victims to use once more the words of john gilmary shea historian of these and their fellow pioneers fain would we pause to follow each in his labors his trials and his toils recount their dangers from the heathen huron the skulking iroquois the frozen river hunger cold and accident to show garnier wrestling with the floating ice through which he sank on an errand of mercy chabanel struggling on for years on a mission from which every fibre of his nature shrunk with loathing chaumanot compiling his grammar on the frozen earth or the heroic brebeuf paralyzed by a fall with his collar-bone broken creeping on his hands and feet along the road and sleeping unsheltered on the snow when the very trees were splitting with cold and later as a martyr one of the most glorious in our annals for the variety and atrocity of his torments this last mentioned black gown jean de brebeuf called ichon by the hurons was a writer of valuable works on the indian language and customs he belonged to a noble family of normandy and on account of his great natural courage and soldierly bearing his agony was prolonged by the savages with fiendish ingenuity till finally failing to wring a sigh of pain from his lips they clove open his chest 
took out his noble heart and devoured it as a medicine to make them fearless-hearted the fortitude of a brave man under torture was a spectacle as keenly appreciated by the iroquois as were the gladiator fights and martyrdoms of old by the romans the women in this case however instead of decreeing death by turning down their own thumbs were granted the less fatal and less dainty privilege of sawing off the thumb of the victim as in the case of jogues at osernanon the human torches of nero who had the early christians wrapped in straw and placed in his garden on the palatine hill then set on fire to illuminate his evening revels are vividly recalled by the death of brebeuf's companion the delicate and gentle gabriel lallemand he was wrapped in pieces of bark which were put in a blaze his writhing frame and quivering flesh contrasted finely with the stoic endurance of brebeuf and the iroquois kept him alive till morning leaving his body at last a black and shapeless mass these gifted men living and dying in the wilderness were not without devoted followers as can well be imagined and many of their converts the christian hurons a now conquered race dwelt with their old foes in the longhouse with the capture of those of the hurons who had taken refuge at ile orleans the long struggle ended between the two branches of a great indian family or stock the huron iroquois and the iroquois of the league once victorious it was the policy of the five nations of the league to quit all enmity and to give the vanquished a home in their midst though the hurons lost their national existence when thus adopted into the league they did not lose their christian faith they clung to it in the midst of all the wild superstitions of their conquerors they explained it to others as well as they could and they welcomed with glad hearts any black gown who was brave enough to tread in the footsteps of jogues such an one was father lemoyne who came and went five times among the onondagas and the mohawks between the years sixteen fifty three and sixteen fifty eight even while they were at war with his countrymen on the st lawrence on a hurried visit to fort orange the nearest colony of europeans he told the people there of the salt springs which are now a source of wealth at syracuse but the wealthy burghers were incredulous and put it down in their records as a jesuit lie these early settlers of our state in spite of such occasional indications of prejudice were a kind-hearted and a peace-loving people always ready to do friendly offices for men who unlike their rivals the canadian traders seemed to value the souls of the indians more than their beaver skins they had already rescued two jesuits jogues and brissani from captivity and they afterwards sent father lemoyne a bottle of wine with which to say mass at onondaga this last missionary the indians now called ondesonk in memory of jogues he visited the mohawks in sixteen fifty six to console the huron exiles from ile orleans and at the same time he reproached the mohawk warriors for their cruelty 
This, of course, was little to the taste of Tekakwitha's pagan father, who took care, no doubt, that the black gown should have no intercourse with his Algonquin wife, for in his opinion she was already too fond of the French Christians. He did not wish her to have his tiny newborn daughter signed with the ill-omened cross, and to have the water of baptism poured on her head. So Andesanc came and went, passing near but not finding Tekakwitha's mother, who still cherished the Christian faith in her heart. When she knew that he was gone, it must have been with many a sigh and many a thought of her northern home that she tied her baby to its cradle-board, all carved and curtained after the Indian fashion, and then, loaded with the precious burden, went off as usual to her work in the cornfields. From time to time she would pause for a moment to smile at her little breathing bundle as it swung from the branch of a tree nearby, and we may be sure, too, that as she gathered in the harvest for the winter, she whispered many a prayer for peace and for the coming of the black gown to dwell in the land that her child might grow up a Christian. Let us hope some distant echo reached her in the Mohawk cornfield from the shores of Onondaga Lake, for there, where the city of Syracuse now sits among the hills, a crowd of Iroquois were gathered at that very time into the rough bark chapel of St. Mary's of Ganentaha, listening to the Christian law of marriage preached then for the first time in their land. Quick to understand the new dignity it gave them, the Onondaga women silently made up their minds to learn the prayer by which they meant Christianity. All the while that the black gown was speaking, the captive Hurons who were in the throng gazed with pent-up joy at the face of their beloved Ishan, Chaumanot, the namesake of Brebeuf, whose voice they had often heard at the mission forts in their own country. Soon after Ishan's visit, other fathers came among the Iroquois nations with a colony of Frenchmen, these last had been cordially invited to onondaga the reason for this invitation was that its people hard pressed by their savage enemies wanted peace with anoncio the french governor and thought to secure it in this way the mohawks however took no part in this temporary peace they were angry with the onondagas for claiming their captives from the ile orleans and they continued their raids on the French frontier, regardless of a treaty made by their brother nation. It must be remembered, though, that these Indians, while warring with the French, were then, and always, at peace with the Dutch of Fort Orange. From them they obtained the firearms that were used so effectively in their warfare in Canada. The wife of the Mohawk warrior at Gondawaga may have heard rumors of the treaty made with Anantio, but she saw the great kettle prepared as usual in the turtle village for the annual war dance, and all hope of a peace with the French died out once more from her heart. It was the custom of the Mohawks to set this kettle to boil in the early winter, and from time to time each warrior dropped something in to keep it going, and thus to signify his intention of joining the next expedition. By February all was in readiness for the great dance of the nation, 
a war dance among the indians is conducted in some such way as this stripped of all but the breechcloth gay with war paint and feathers the dried head of a bear if that be the totem of his clan fastened on head or shoulder and with rattling deer hoofs strapped to his knees each warrior springs to his place and the wild dance begins accompanied by the beating of a drum wilder and wilder grow their antics and more boastful the words of their chant as they catch the spirit of the dance till at last they seem the very incarnation of war with all the vividness of indian pantomime they act out the scenes of battle before the eyes of the crouching women and children gathered in silent awe to witness this great savage drama at first the warriors seem to be creeping along the forest trail with every faculty alert and then with fearful whoops they whirl their tomahawks through the air at a senseless post springing back as if in self-defense falling again upon the imaginary foe hacking with violence and mingling shrieks with their victorious shouts till in the flickering light of the fire and the weird shadows of surrounding objects the assembled crowd completely carried away by the vividness of the pantomime see human victims falling beneath their strokes during the progress of the annual war dance at gondawaga a group of indian boys stand gazing with wide open eyes at the heroes of the kanienke haka whose past and future deeds are thus pictured before them with swelling hearts they listen to the wild refrain Wahi! Ho-ha! that comes at intervals among the smallest of the group we have in view is tekakwitha's little brother and her father is taking part in the dance his voice as it leads a louder swell of the war song startles her from her baby dreams and she nestles close in her mother's arms later she hears the same voice in the lodge a few brief words rolling from the tongue of the warrior in the low musical tones of the mohawk language and it only lulls her into sounder sleep the dance is over and the crowd scattered but still we linger about to see what will happen next a death-like silence reigns in the village there is not one sentinel on watch it would be well if they were more vigilant but for the present they are safe their foes are far away and the high palisade keeps off the prowling beasts the darkness of night has closed over them it is the hour for dreams and dreams are the religion of the red man they are treasured up and told to the medicine man or sorcerer the influential being who is both priest and doctor in the village when the excitement of the war dance has subsided and the people are all sleeping soundly this mysterious personage with stealthy tread may be seen to issue from the silent cluster of houses and by the light of the moon he gathers his herbs and catches the uncanny creatures of the night with which to weave his spells he knows that the young warriors will be coming to him for some inkling of their fate on the warpath and besides he must supply a certain cure for their wounds when he has found it for them he will gather them all in the public square at gondawaga and after other exhibitions of his skill will perhaps cut his own lip 
and when the blood is flowing freely will stanch it and cure it in a moment by applying his magic drug it will be well for his fame if there be not the keen eye of a french jesuit in the crowd to watch him as he quickly sucks the blood into his mouth he knows that the warriors are easily duped by his cunning and will probably buy his mixture happy in its possession they will fear no evil effects from their wounds their sweethearts too seek the sorcerer to have their fortunes told and the old men and women come to him with their ailments even the orators are glad of a hint from his fertile brain and the oyander or matron of rank who is about to nominate a new chief may perhaps consult him if her choice has been already made however it is no easy task to persuade her to change her mind with the month of march comes the dream feast and then the medicine man is in his glory for three days the town is in a hubbub given up to every freak of the imagination all the dreams of its people no matter how foolish and unreasonable must be fulfilled in some way to the dreamer's satisfaction the wiser heads among them have to tax their ingenuity to the utmost to prevent the worst excesses of this crazy celebration the christian indians above all dreaded its coming for if the sorcerer's interpretation pointed in their direction they were sure to suffer during the celebration of the dream feast the algonquin captive would not fail to hide herself and her children in the darkest corner she could find she had a better chance to pass unnoticed however than the more numerous huron christians who like herself had been captured by the iroquois against these there was a growing enmity encouraged no doubt by the sorcerers who profited least of all by their presence among the people some months after the time of the dream feast the gathering storm burst over their heads on the third of august sixteen fifty seven the hurons who dwelt at onondaga were suddenly massacred the party that had been advocating friendship with the french and which had taken the lead in establishing the french colony at onondaga headed by gara contier the sun that advances were fast losing ground the situation even of the french colonists who were there was becoming critical and in april sixteen fifty eight when tekakwitha was in her second year strange things happened in the long house of the five nations End of chapter two